You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Say here at Mosaic, you're going to need a Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. Y'all know the drill. Um, We are going to be continuing in the book of Mark this week, taking a deeper look at chapter 6, starting in verse 30. You've got some time to take it out. This beginning chunk covers the famous miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I say famous because this miracle has actually been recorded in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you've heard of it before, my prayer and hope is that today you'll hear that story in a new way. I think there's something significant about the fact that this miracle appears in every gospel account. It makes me wonder, what is it about this miracle that makes it so significant? Why do we need to hear it over and over again? Why did all four gospel authors think it was important to include? What is so important about Jesus taking the little bread and fish that his followers brought to him and breaking it so it could become something more? We all know what it's like to only have a little of something, right? I know we've all experienced what it's like to have a lack of something because we survived the toilet paper crisis of 2020 um, during all of the coronavirus chaos, um, which COVID-19, as far as I know, doesn't typically make someone need more toilet paper. Um, It's not really a symptom, but for some reason, we started panic buying from the grocery stores. Every shelf was empty, and we were afraid that we were never going to have enough toilet paper again. So we started panic buying as if the toilet paper was going out of production. And there are, um, there's, there's a lot of items that actually have had some production issues. There, let's see, there's computer chips, baby formula, gasoline, and there's also been a few odd ones, uh, like Christmas trees, don't know if you noticed, maple syrup, and potatoes, which I don't know what I'd do without a life of potatoes. I mean, it's in french fries and, I mean, everything. Um, So I'm glad that we've started to sort that out. But the truth is we also have faced a much deeper kind of lack, much, much deeper than potatoes. We've had a lack of time, lack of energy, lack of community, lack of the emotional well-being to deal with it all. We all know what it's like to not have enough or be enough. And that problem started long before 2020. In her book, Soul of Money, Lynn Twist points out that our first thought in the morning is often, I didn't get enough sleep. And our last thought at night is usually, I didn't get enough done. Enough. We're real good at feeling not enough. And this not enoughness is a universal experience that every living creature seems to fight on this side of the fall. So maybe that's what makes this miracle in Mark 6 so compelling. The scripture begins as the disciples return to Jesus after being sent out to cast out demons, heal the sick, and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
But just in case the disciples needed a reminder that they were not God, Jesus made them use what elementary school teachers like my mother call the buddy system, which I know for some of you it's been a while since you were in middle school or elementary school. I'm looking at you, Christopher. Um, So if you need the reminder, um, the buddy system is where you have someone in a pair because you can't really be trusted to go off on your own. You can't do things on your own. So that's how Jesus sent them off. In pairs, they were forbidden from bringing their own bread, bag, even an extra shirt. This meant that if they were going to do God's work, they were going to have to rely on God's provision. So the disciples returned to Jesus in verse 30 as empty-handed as when they left, except for the testimonies of all they had done and taught. And then after a long period of hard work, they are both hungry and tired. Have y'all ever been hungry and tired after a long period of hard work? Thank you. So why in the world then did Jesus respond, come away by yourselves to this desolate place and rest a while? A desolate place. Or your Bible may translate it deserted, isolated, or even a forsaken wasteland. So, if you're feeling upset about spending your 4th of July weekend in Evans, Georgia, just be glad it's not the forsaken wasteland that Jesus brought his disciples to on vacation. Because this vacation spot with Jesus is essentially a dry, empty wilderness. Why? Why? The wilderness seems to be one of God's favorite places to take his children as recorded throughout scripture. But it's usually more like a Boy Scouts camping trip than a vacation at the beach. The wilderness teaches us some things that we can't learn anywhere else. There, the Israelites waited on God for 40 years before entering the promised land. After generations of slavery and relying on their oppressors, the Israelites had to learn the long way to rely on God instead. Jesus himself spent 40 days in the wilderness, praying, fasting, being tempted by Satan, before, just before beginning his public ministry, and right after his baptism. But there's something to this empty wilderness that God seems to love using anyways. He makes a hobby out of it. He makes a hobby out of bringing water to the deserts and life to dead places. Always working where we least expect it. Answering the prayers we don't even think to pray for. God does some of the best work in the places where only he can provide. Because when we get to that place, when we get to that place and realize there is nothing left for us to do, our only option is to rely on God. It is his loving way of forcing us out of our own pride and self-reliance and learning to trust in him instead. One of my favorite quotes is by Pastor Tony Evans, who said, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you can discover he is the rock at that bottom. God will let you hit rock bottom so that we can discover he is the rock at that bottom. The people who show up next in this passage have clearly hit their own rock bottom. 
Apparently, the disciples' work earned them an impressive Yelp review score because the demand for teaching, healing, and demon exorcism is high. It's not quite the perfect picture of health. Talk about a place where there is a need for broken people to become whole through Jesus. Continuing in verse 33, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and I want us to read this part together, and it'll be on the screen. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Let's say it again. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says, Jesus began to teach them many things. Did y'all know sheep are extremely vulnerable creatures? That's actually why they need a shepherd in the first place. And to look this up, I found an article about it on farmingbase.com, of all places. So if you've been looking for farming advice lately, you're welcome. You owe me one. Farmingbase.com. And it, the article was responding to someone who was sick of the whole shepherd thing. They were done with the foolish, silly, stubborn creatures and decided they're just going to go on their own. I'll let them fend for themselves. But the article responds, no. Sheep cannot live without their shepherd. They are entirely dependent on the shepherd for everything. They require constant care and watching over, so leaving them unattended can put them at risk and greatly endanger their lives. Just to double check this information, I texted one of my best friends whose family actually raises sheep, again, because Texas. And my friend said, and I quote, sheep are afraid of everything get themselves into bad situations, have a hard time trusting, and don't know what's good for them. Does that sound familiar to anyone here at Mosaic? I know it does, because it sounds familiar to me. So when Mark says Jesus saw this crowd like sheep without a shepherd, this is what he's talking about. <laughs> like sheep Wandering for greener pastures, this crowd wandered their way into the wilderness after Jesus. People in deep, deep need, not just for their physical challenges, but also their spiritual ones. They were lost, aimless, directionless, with barely an idea how they got there or where they were going to go next. Maybe not even knowing what they needed, just that they needed something beyond themselves, someone beyond themselves because they were not and could not be enough on their own to fix all their hurts and hang-ups. Yet they ran desperately to Jesus, hoping that he could be. Have you ever felt like this? Desperate, helpless, and deeply in need of something you can't give yourself. Out of options. This mob of people, many of whom are probably sick, disabled, or demon-possessed, run on foot to beat the boat to the wilderness and crash the disciples' vacation. But rather than being frustrated, Jesus has compassion on them, like they are sheep without a shepherd. If you've ever felt rejection or hurt by someone you trusted, 
or experienced any level of abuse or abandonment, it can feel pretty impossible to trust Jesus to protect and care for you. If you've only experienced a couple of bad shepherds, it's hard to trust God to be a good one. It's it's hard to picture what a good shepherd even looks like if you've never seen one in the first place. Which is why we have to keep coming back to scripture. Back to scripture to remember the truth that when we run to God, he never runs out of compassion for us. When we run to God, he never runs out of compassion for us. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, God introduces his name to Moses, saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that phrase, that phrase repeats over and over and over again throughout Scripture, almost as if we need that reminder over and over and over again. And then the image of a shepherd with his beloved sheep also often appears, like in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, which says, He tends his flock like a sheep. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. So we can say pretty confidently that God is not mad, annoyed, or short-tempered with our not-enoughness. Instead, he meets us with compassion, gentleness, and tender care. And y'all, Carolyn is the one who told me this needed to be on the screen. So I know if she was here right now, she'd be saying, you ought to write that down. Because we need help remembering it. You ought to write that down. He meets us with compassion, gentleness, and tender care. That's what our God is like. He's not angry with you for reaching out for him. He's not angry with you for having a hard time believing in in his goodness. He's not angry with you. He cares about you. He has compassion on you. At this point in Mark 6, the only problem then is that the disciples feel a bit differently about the crowd than Jesus does. It's getting late. It had been a while. Remember, they were working, and now the disciples are hangry, hungry, angry, You know that feeling, kind of like that Snickers commercial that goes, you're not you when you're hungry. It's been a while since I've seen it, but for some reason it's just forever in my brain. So the disciples who are hangry remind Jesus that it's getting late. They need some food. As if the one who formed the sun in the beginning didn't notice it now setting on the horizon. And then I love the way that Jesus, I love the way that the message translation of the Bible tells the rest of this moment with Jesus. Starting in verse 37, it says, Jesus said, you do it. Fix supper for them. They replied, are you serious? You want us to go spend a fortune on food for their supper. Remember, there's 5,000 people. But he was quite serious. How many loaves of bread do you have? Take an inventory. That didn't take long. Five, they said, plus two fish. Jesus got them all to sit down in groups of 50 or 100. They looked like a patchwork quilt of wildflowers spread out on the green grass. He took the five loaves and two fish, lifted his face to heaven in prayer, blessed, broke, and gave the bread to the disciples, and the disciples, in turn, 
gave it to the people. He did the same with the fish. They all ate their fill. The disciples gathered 12 baskets of leftovers. More than 5,000 were at the supper. Now, I know church people like to enjoy a good meal, but I bet none of y'all have seen a potluck as impressive as this one, right? Almost everyone comes empty-handed, and there's not a Publix in sight, may I remind you. They can't just go somewhere and buy some extra food. Their only option at this point is do what Jesus says. And it's, it's wild because when these people come to Jesus empty, when we come to Jesus empty, he makes sure everyone is filled. Not only that, but there are leftovers. It overflows. More than 5,000 desperate people run to Jesus in this desolate place, yet there is more than enough. He is more than enough. And now I've got to be honest with y'all. I've got, a, I've got a confession to make. This is a safe place for that, right? So I used to have this bumper sticker on my car, and by used to, I mean until Carolyn gave me this, this uh, sermon to preach on. It's ironic because the bumper sticker says, you are enough, and the sermon title is, he is enough. And I got the bumper sticker in my defense when I was a senior in high school, and I was in a dark place. Um, I was too aware of my own not enoughness, deeply aware of it. Um, I'd been struggling with these feelings of emptiness, loneliness, loneliness, worthlessness, and hopelessness that it turns out was called depression. And I'd been dealing with that for a while, trying to figure it out on my own. And I knew a lot of my friends were struggling with the same thing. I knew it was a common issue to deal with this kind of shame. And so I thought that this cute little bumper sticker that said, you are enough, might be fun to put on the back of my car, make someone's day. I thought it was sweet. Oh, and I also thought that um, it might help if I was, you know, I made a dumb decision while I was driving, that the other drivers wouldn't be so mad at me. Um, <laughs> which, did I mention I'm a people pleaser? Um, if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, so I had this bumper sticker on the back of my car for a while with the best of intentions. But I've come to realize now that the answer to our own inadequacies can't be ourselves. Because we're not en- We're not enough. And in her well-titled book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay, Allie Beth Stuckley writes, the self isn't enough, period. The answer to the purposelessness and hollowness we feel is found not in us, but outside of us. The solutions to our problem and pain aren't found in self-love, but in God's love. I'd say our endless struggle to convince ourselves and others that we're enough is probably a pretty good clue that we're not a well-meaning and nice-sounding lie is still a lie, no matter how cute it looks as a bumper sticker on the back of my car. But the truth is, we are not enough. We never have been, we never will be, and we weren't meant to be. From creation, people were made to depend on God for everything. All that we had, even the creatures God gave us dominion over, came out of God's love for us. God gave us plants, God gave us animals, God gave us each other. But none of that was done on our own. 
We didn't need to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because knowing it all was never our job in the first place. And that's news to some of us. This reliance on God worked for a little bit until we decided we wanted to be like God, but not with God. To know all that God knows without having to know God. The question the serpent asked Eve, the one that changed everything, began with, did God really say? Did God really say? The mistake that changed everything was about trying to take our trust from God and place it in something else. In a serpent, in a fruit, in ourselves. Then, y'all know the rest of the story. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and now we're really good at blaming everyone but ourselves or ourselves way too much. We've tried to cover up our own enoughness in a lot of failed methods. Adam and Eve tried fig leaves. Jacob, who was eventually named Israel, fun fact, uh, tried goat skin. We've all tried power and pride and perfectionism. But it's never enough. And it's exhausting to try to be enough because we weren't made for it. Because we cannot save ourselves from ourselves, God gave us a savior, which means we aren't meant to rely on ourselves to save us from our not enoughness. We're meant to rely on Jesus. We aren't meant to be enough, but to run to the one who is. For me, accepting that we are not enough by design has become a huge relief, actually. Um, it doesn't mean we give up on growth or sanctification or seeking to become more like Christ. It just means we have healthier expectations, right? I know that I can't be everything for everybody and I can't please all the people, no matter how hard I try. It's not fair for me to expect that from anybody else either. I'm not enough to fix all the problems. And unfortunately, other people aren't enough to fix me either. But knowing this means that I can share honestly about my own shortcomings and take responsibility for the ways that I contribute to my own chaos. I can also be grateful for the gifts God has given me, the loaves and fish I do have to offer, and trust that God will make them more than enough. I can preach a sermon and know that no matter how imperfect it is, God is going to meet us in this room and go with us out of it. He'll take the loaves and fishes and make it more than enough. Now let's turn back to the scripture. Jump back to the boat in Mark 6, starting in verse 45. It says, As soon as the meal was finished, Jesus insisted the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead to Bethsaida while he dismissed the congregation. After sending them off, he climbed a mountain to pray. Hmm. Let's pause there, because I think it's pretty interesting that Jesus chose to stop ministering to people at that point. Jesus knew the need was endless, but his time was limited. And he knew when to call it a day so he could go rest and pray, even though it meant turning away some people. Hear this. He had the ability to discern when to end a good thing so that he could rest in preparation for a greater thing. I'm bad at that. <laughs> I'm real bad at that. And also, honestly, this passage flies in the face of every time I've ever said something like, 
I don't need to set aside time to pray because I talk to God in the mornings when I'm getting ready and in the car and, you know, we, you know, just we talk all the time. We're that close. But y'all, Jesus was one with God. He was one with God and still set aside time to pray. For Jesus, prayer wasn't just a priority, but a necessity. Jesus knew prayer happens on purpose, not by accident, and so he lived his life that way. And then this next section of scripture may seem a little unrelated to the story just before about the loaves and fishes, but I want you all to hang on with me for a moment, and we'll see why Mark placed them back to back. Jumping back in in verse 47. Late at night, the boat was far out at sea. Jesus was still by himself on land. He could see his men struggling with the oars, the wind having come up against them. At about four o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the sea. He intended to go right by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and screamed, scared to death. (laughs) Jesus was quick to comfort them, because he's Jesus. Courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. As soon as he climbed into the boat, the wind died. They were stunned, shaking their heads, wondering what was going on. They didn't understand what he'd done at the supper. None of this yet had penetrated their hearts. They didn't understand what he had done at the supper. How Mark tells the gospel is never accidental. He doesn't mention something just for fun. It all has importance. So what does the supper have to do with this moment at sea? What's the point of including that? I think the disciples just still didn't get it. They didn't get that the man telling them it's me was one with the God named I am. The one, the God who'd walked with their ancestors through the desert was walking on water with them that very day. They didn't understand how the loaves and fish had been enough because they didn't yet understand that God is enough. That Jesus is enough. Yet in both the desert and the storm, Jesus was enough for everyone including those who just couldn't get it yet. Continuing to verse 53, it said, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Once again, it's those willing to admit their need, running to Jesus, willing to go wherever he goes. And then the chapter ends at verse 46. And wherever he went, into villages, cities, or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This scripture makes me think immediately of the bleeding woman in chapter 5 of Mark. Uh, We didn't go over chapter 5 last week, but I'll I'll remind you about it if it's been a while. this bleeding woman had been constantly um, dealing with this issue for 12 years. She tried every doctor, every solution out there. She was out of money, out of options. She did not know what else to do. So she came to Jesus with nothing, nothing but the hope that he could heal her. And then in this moment of faithful audacity, she reached out to Jesus just to touch his cloak and she was healed. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
And here, once again, the faithful audacity of people willing to reach out in faith is enough in Jesus. Since 2020, it has felt like we live in a world that is bleeding out. Our culture is exhausted, anemic. We are out of options. If you didn't know that you weren't enough before, you definitely know it now. The last few years have been humbling. There's so, so much need. We don't have enough of anything. We're out of time and sleep, nurses and teachers and therapists, and we're out of money for gas and formula for babies. And as someone who's coming of age into this chaos, it's hard for me to know what normal even is, what it is we're trying to all go back to. But what I'm hoping, what I think it seems like is that we're at least becoming more acutely aware of our own not enoughness my hope and the best thing that I can think to ask God is that this would actually become a good thing somehow the kind of thing that forces us to see our fallen world and seek God in it anyways but we've got to be real it's a lot easier said than done it's one thing to read these scriptures and to know in our heads okay God is enough God is enough Jesus provides loaves and fish to repeat that story over and over in our minds, it's one thing to know that God is enough. It's a whole different thing to really know it. To know it in our head versus to know it in our heart. It's hard. It can feel impossible. It feels like more often than not, my brain and circumstances conspire against me to make that kind of faithful audacity that the woman had and these people had sound like a pipe dream. Pie in the sky. Must be nice for them. Wish I could do that. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in feeling like that. It can feel like we have been reaching out to Jesus to grab onto just the hem of his cloak, but instead we are barely hanging on by a thread. Like we've run into the wilderness looking for Jesus and can't seem to find him. Like we did our part. We did our part and tried to meet Jesus in the wilderness, but he's not there. Like he stood us up. And we can wonder, where is the Jesus of Mark 6? When everyone is filled, saved, and healed because they have the faith to ask. We can wonder where God is and feel like he's left us. And we can even begin to wonder what kind of shepherd would leave his sheep feeling that way. Thankfully, God knows that our faith and our feelings don't depend on each other. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. So when we do not see God's provision in the wilderness, faith is hoping for it anyways. It's hanging on to Jesus' cloak, the last thread of our hope, until it makes us well. To work this out practically takes a lot of practice. It does take a lot of faith to keep seeking after faith, 
but we can go back to those Israelites wandering in the wilderness for a better idea of how to do it. They're wandering in the wilderness, waiting for God between Egypt and Canaan. No longer in bondage, but still not yet in the promised land. And they had to remember God's provision over and over and over and over again. They had to remind themselves over and over again, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, over and over again. When they didn't have enough, they had to remind themselves of the times God had been enough. And this remembering wasn't just about recalling a memory like, oh yeah, I remember that time that he made manna appear on the ground and like split the sea. I remember all that. It was an active remembering. It was an action. It was a verb. They remembered that God is enough by telling their testimonies and singing songs about the times he'd proven it. And I bet they sang even when they didn't feel like it sometimes. I bet they worshiped even when they didn't feel like it sometimes, hoping that God would help them feel it. And then the Israelites were also real good at celebrating. It was a huge part of their culture. There was the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Passover. It was kind of like how we celebrate Thanksgiving dinner, but like a lot more often. And I'm not saying that you have to host some big meal every time you need help remembering God's faithfulness, although, hear me out, I will accept any invitation to free food. <laughs> My roommate Mackenzie knows that. That's right, amen, thank you, yes. I'm just saying that being able to celebrate when God has been enough is a powerful expression of our faith. Being able to worship the God who is enough is especially powerful when we don't necessarily feel it. It's an expression of faith, of what we do not see. It's confidence in what we hope for. And then when we struggle to think of God's faithfulness specifically to us, to me, Looking to the people of God who came before us can be just as powerful. You can do that in a lot of different ways. You can read scripture and testimonies of God's faithfulness. And you can also look to the body of believers here at Mosaic. Find someone who has been walking in faith a little bit longer than you. And ask them to tell you their story. Go back and watch the sermon Carolyn preached right here just last week about a prayer for healing that she didn't know what to do with for a long time, but God showed up and answered. God showed up. Go watch that sermon, y'all. It is helpful to talk with people, to talk to other believers, to remember God's faithfulness, and we have to do it. And I, I bet that if you're willing to ask people about the times that God has been faithful to them, I'm willing to bet they'll tell you. And then the last thing, and this is one of my favorites, the people of God also spent a full day in rest, Sabbath, to help them remember to rest and rely on God because that's what they, we, need, were made to do, to rest and rely on God's enoughness because we know we need to. When we struggle to have faith in God, we have to remember the times he's been faithful to us. When we struggle with the world's not enoughness, we have to remember that God is enough. And we have to pray. Because that's a part of Sabbath. That's a part of faith. 
that's a part of reaching out to Jesus. So I want you now, I want to invite you now to sit, stand, kneel. You can come up front, sit at your chair, stand, whatever feels comfortable for you. Whatever gets you to that place where you can be passionate and not passive in prayer and worship. We'll worship again in just a moment to praise God for his faithfulness and remember it together in action. And the other thing that we have to do when our faith just doesn't feel like enough is to pray that God would make it more than enough, that God would multiply that too. It's a kind of running into the wilderness after Jesus. It's a way of reaching out for the hem of his cloak, going to the one who is enough because we know we aren't. Like the man in Mark 9 who says honestly to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And together this morning, we can pray that same thing. And if that's something you'd like help pray, or if you would just like to have someone pray with you, if you can't find the words, or you could use a hand on your shoulder, a fellow believer in Christ, y'all, I would be honored to pray with you, honored. And I know that we have several others who would be happy to accept that invitation. So let's go to our God in prayer. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We know that we are not enough. It is painfully obvious. So God, help us to believe that you are. Help us to want to run after you to want to run after you, even if it's to the wilderness, and to believe that you are there, even if we don't see you right away. God, help us to know how to look for you, how to celebrate you when you do show up, and to remember it. Give us the faith to celebrate you, to wait for you in the wilderness. Take what we do have, even if it's just a few loaves and a couple of fishes, and fill us with faith until it overflows. That kind of faith that sees you in the storms and knows we're safe because of it. Because we remember the supper, because we remember that you're enough. The kind of faith that makes a person reach out to you over and over and over again, holding on tighter every time until you make us well. God, we need you. You are our only and best hope, the living hope. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We trust you with tomorrow will be done. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.